0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I am pleased to welcome Darren Baraney, author of The New Welfare Consensus, Ideological, Political, and Social Origins, from SUNY Press. Darren, welcome.
1: Thank you, Stephen, for having me.
0: Uh, So before we talk about the book itself, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is that brought you to this particular project?
1: Sure. So uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, with the run-up to and signing of the Welfare Reform Bill, and in, in eventually in 1996, um, the debate and discussion around welfare and policy and reform and all of the related issues like work and family and personal responsibility and the role of the state to provide a minimum you know, standard of living for those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, etc., um, you know the 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 discussion that was happening around that time for me, um, I was just starting a master's in public administration program at SEPA, at Columbia, um, and the 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 prevailing kind of assumptions that were being made and the kind of things that were being said in that discourse, uh, many of them for me just didn't seem to add up. Um, but I, I felt like at least I I, I I know I wasn't the only person who felt this way, but in that environment I felt. So, you know, out of a cohort of a few dozen people, um, I felt like the only person that was thinking about these things in, ter- in a kind of New Deal expansionist kind of paradigm still, which at that time, I think people thought of as very passe, because all of the kind of cutting edge ideas around welfare reform were all about decentralizing the financing and administration of programs and public private partnerships, you know, this drive toward neoliberal privatization of everything, et cetera. So I, I sort of, you know, I was only in my mid twenties, but I kind of felt like uh, in terms of, uh, you know, policy thought, I felt a bit like a dinosaur. (laughs) So it, it got me, it got me thinking about these issues and it got me wondering like where these assumptions, where these ideas came from. So I was interested to know the, the actual um, you know, the, you know, the the philosophies, the actual ideas that came to constitute these ways of thinking and what their origins were philosophically, but also what the conditions, what the environment was that sort of allowed this way of thinking about not just programs and policy, but uh, the non-working and welfare poor, like human beings, you know, thinking about them in these really, what I, what I viewed as very sort of uh, problematic terms, you know, evoking some of the worst, uh, you know, Uh, racial uh, and ethnic stereotypes and and all kinds of assumptions around traditional uh, uh, gender and family roles, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's sort of what got me interested in in that. Um, After the the MPA, I I worked in city government for a while. Um, I worked for the Department of Homeless Services in New York City here where I live, um and i you know i did contract oversight but also i worked on affordable housing uh development um i helped work on the um the adult rental assistance plan for new york city um i also contributed to numerous new need request memos to the office of management and budget here in the city this was during the giuliani administration and those were just one after another shot down despite the fact that you know i thought i was so smart making all of these points about how, well, if we kick in money, it'll leverage money from the state and the federal government, and these permanent housing solutions that are affordable for formerly homeless people, they they reduce the chances of recidivism back to the shelters and back on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. And it seemed to be falling on deaf ears. So off to a PhD program I went uh, to sort of think about these issues related to policy and poverty and inequality, uh, perhaps a little bit more deeply and the the new welfare consensus, the book uh, really was the sort of culmination of my dissertation research and a, a fairly substantial rewriting of, of that project
0: so let's so so in 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 trying to make sense of of the the state of welfare policies and looking particularly at the repeal of AFDC in the 1990s you you trace strains of, of, you identify what, what what you point to as three different strains of anti-welfare thought, conservative thought from the post-war period leading up to the president. Um, if you could sort of uh, talk to us about what each of those three strains of conservative slash anti-welfare thought is and and walk us through that story. How do you think we do get from, from that relatively expansionist period of the 1930s to the contractions of
1: the 1990s. Uh, that's an excellent question um, and the you know and it when I looked into these things I wanted to trace those ideas but I didn't want it to merely be um, a kind of intellectual history or a history of ideas but rather a kind of consideration of those ideas in relation to the you know the system of late capitalism the political and economic systems the way people have Different levels of power and decision making in terms of those systems, and um, so I wanted to consider those those ideologies as they sort of tapped into and stoked all kinds of white patriarchal resentment. Uh, it, you know, were tinged with all kinds of problematic assumptions around race and ethnicity and gender and family, et cetera, et cetera. But to think about them as sort of material forces unto themselves, to kind of use Stuart Hall's terminology. Um, by actually rooting them in the moment, in the sort of uh, the, the related conditions and, and historical and social that kind of allowed them to gain traction and take hold. So what I did was I kind of tried to go as far back as I could to where the discussion around welfare reform and around welfare and policy in general, at least kind of sounded like some of the things that are being said today in more contemporary uh, conservative discourse around welfare. Now, it's important to note, uh, I should say, that anti-welfarism in the United States, uh, pretty much from the 80s on, uh, arguably the late 70s on, is, was something that was had accepted in a bipartisan manner. Um, the, the assumptions bound up in this new welfare consensus in anti-welfarist ideology are largely accepted across both major parties, Democrats, Republicans, Republicans. Uh, You know, liberals, especially so-called center left or or centrist liberals, uh, uh, as well as conservatives, largely accept these premises now. However, um, the origins of these ideas really lie in different strains, as you say, of conservative thought. Um, So those different strains are if you trace them back and, and, you know, there's a bit of a I try to keep it as simple as possible in the book and not get bogged down in different like terms and what they refer to specifically and whether it's right or wrong that people use them interchangeably, et cetera. Um, But if we, you know, the the book starts with talking about um, laissez-faire free market ideas, right? The tradition of libertarianism as it's called in the United States. Um, And, you know, just my students always get a kick out of this, you know, in terms of just how nuanced and complicated and confusing uh, American political history is, you know, uh, what today we call economic conservatism used to be liberalism, right, in the classical sense. And because of a sort of period of transformation in terms of how classical liberals or laissez-faire individualists or libertarians, you know, whatever we want to refer to them as, uh, because of the sort of Uh, struggles that were taking place among intellectuals at that time, they were sort of smeared as conservatives, which is a label they rejected at first. People like Friedrich von Hayek and H.L. Mencken and Frank Chodorov and Albert J. Nock and Ludwig von Mises and the whole sort of cast of free market characters. Um, But eventually, the people who were embracing those ideas, in addition to other kinds of conservative ideas in ways that were at times uh, contradictory, but but it's politically expedient, etc. Um, you know, they, they were uh, uh, doing so uh, based on a certain set of presumptions around uh, kind of uh, free market or libertarian uh, principles, and those are primarily that uh, there should be an emphasis on free markets, that markets are extensions of nature and shouldn't be. Obstructed by things like labor unions or taxes and the welfare state, or um, you know any other kind of bureaucratic or state-based controls or regulation, Um, they operate on the principle that property is something that's owned privately. They operate on the principle that the fundamental motivation that drives uh, productive behavior for individuals is self-interest. So they tended to see any. They were also in terms of foreign policy the very staunch libertarians were isolationist. And that was one of the things that sort of drove libertarianism. Those who sort of stayed true to pure libertarianism drove them to the margins as the U.S. entered World War II and support for the war had had increased. Um, so this is where you had interesting reshufflings and sort of reorientations around different uh, political, economic value commitments and, and ways people identified in terms of their politics. Um but any sort of state-based, uh, you know, uh, you know, central planning kind of solution to address the needs of the society, were seen as a slippery slope into totalitarian dictatorship, like what happened in Europe and countries like Spain and Italy and and Nazi Germany and and the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the contributions of this tradition um, uh, are that they, uh, you know, they sort of offered uh, uh, and constructed a boogeyman out of the concept of collectivism and collectivism was this interesting sort of catch-all term that could refer to anything from communism abroad to uh, bureaus and and uh, and the state at home especially the welfare state and the welfare state uh, the way libertarian ideas were ultimately kind of appropriated into the the a, the more contemporary conservative movement um, especially in the 1950s around the formation of what's called the new right um, the idea was that you know there were communists everywhere uh, they had infiltrated the United States they had infiltrated the White House um, and bureaucrats that worked for welfare agencies they were either duped by the communists and thinking they were doing the right thing or they were themselves secret communists who are planted in the U.S. trying to turn us into a socialist and communist society by, you know, working within the the various uh, social services bureaus. Um, And interestingly, you know, uh, Friedrich von Hayek, he, he writes a book that's very important during this period called The Road to Serfdom. It's in that book that he talks about the need to advance classical liberal or libertarian ideas by reaching out to and, and working with conservatives of the more in the more traditional sense um, and in so doing, even though even though from his perspective, you know he was um, coordinating with and collaborating with people whose philosophies he didn't agree with, he, what would happen was people would be turned on to these sort of free market laissez-faire individualist libertarian ideas, even though they were being advanced with the help of forming this coalition with, with more, social conservative or traditionalist conservatives again print the principles of which they did not agree with um, they felt that once people got sort of this taste of this sort of liberty and freedom etc that, that those kind of more paternalistic authoritarian elements of more social conservatism would sort of fade away and and the, and the you know the objectives of the libertarians would be sort of fulfilled so they you know he In his book, he also says, you know, just a little bit of state planning, uh, even with good intentions is, again, a slippery slope, not just into totalitarianism and dictatorship, but also into just miserable, impoverished, uh, you know, his terminology, third world type conditions with bread lines and all the rest of it, just like what we see in Soviet Russia. And for him, you know, any sort of even uh, half measure in that direction or compromise um represented the potential to uh, uh sort of descend into this kind of society that was sort of the you know in their in the libertarian imaginary sort of the you know a nightmare scenario so for them you know it, they were able to provide for people this kind of arsenal of, of rhetorical and and ideological sort of uh sound bites where they could uh you know express anti-statist and anti-welfarist ideas Uh, when needed, even if it contradicted other aspects of their principles. And the libertarians also kind of lay the the blueprint for the conservative think tank activism that's so common today as well, with the formation of the Mont Pelerin Society, the idea that the, the way for people to advance their ideas politically is don't go into politics, but work in the arena of ideas and through the intellectuals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the libertarians. Uh, Now, the more social, uh, traditionalist conservatives, um, they saw, like the libertarians, they saw inequality in the society as a natural human condition, an outgrowth of nature, but not because of unfettered, unobstructed markets, but, you know, just a time-honored, better way of doing things, something that was was, uh, uh, sort of handed down. Via nature, and depending upon the conservative thinker, by by God himself, right? Society was meant to have structure. It was meant to be unequal. Uh, you know, one rule for the ox and the lion, as Richard Weaver says, you know, is is absurd, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there were similarities between these different camps of thinking. They were certainly anti-communist. They were absolutely opposed to the idea that, that bureaucrats should come in and sort of promote equality in any way through the welfare state or otherwise. Uh, and for them, you know, the modernist planners having the audacity, the depravity of messing with traditional quasi-aristocratic, quasi-arist- time-honored, better ways of doing things was sort of deeply problematic for them. So you have this blending of these different ideas that come together in the 1950s in the form of what's called the new right. Uh, the actual figures involved in the New Right, they refer to this way of thinking and themselves as fusionists or fusionist conservatism, which is really the, again, the emergence of the appearance of the New Right, figures like William F. Buckley Jr., uh, the, the Journal of Opinion, really magazine, the periodical National Review. And it becomes this mouthpiece for anti welfarist ideas and free market ideas, but sort of on the same pages. Um, As other intellectuals that are arguing for the U.S. to go to war with the Soviet Union and are promoting these more traditional social conservative ideas as well. So it it presents sort of the prototypical version of the contemporary conservative movement, which is sort of a combination of these different strands of conservative thought um, that becomes sort of more respectable through the 50s and 60s. Extremist ideas are purged like the Ayn Rand objectivist atheists and staunch libertarians that, you know, um, uh, who are unwilling to sort of uh, accept uh, certain traditionalist or social conservative ideas, um, anarchists, etc. They're all sort of purged from the, you know, John Birchers, they're purged from conservatism and conservatism becomes this more um, respectable uh, refined, seemingly coherent set of ideas, but below the surface, really rife with contradictions, all kinds of struggles and conflicts between figures within the movement. But nonetheless, it consolidates power and becomes much more influential.
0: No, the, there's a. So, I mean, one of the I think many fascinating tensions of that is that it, that it seems to me the distinction is that those those traditional conservatives were and arguably still are uh very much not libertarians right they are perfectly happy to use the power of the state if it is to intervene and shore up what they understand to be traditional family ar- arrangements and sort of traditional economic allocation of power right and it seems that that in many ways they wound up prevailing over the libertarians is that is that you think a fair read
1: that that is a uh, i think that's that's right um, what's interesting is, uh, you know, libertarian thought sort of, you know, economic rationality, if you will, becomes a kind of enlightenment or sort of scientistic or social scientific veneer, a kind of like uh, legitimate, it takes on a kind of legitimating function for the conservative movement. So while the conservatives uh, in the more traditional sense, as you say, with regard to preaching certain aspects of morality and imposing certain uh, uh you know ideas around how families should be structured and all of that that doesn't sound like liberty right so there there definitely were these contradictions uh, but they were willing they were able to sort of pull from this this uh, s- uh stockpile of free market ideas as they needed to to give the conservative movement this kind of air of economistic and even enlightenment um, uh you know legitimacy essentially legitimated the american class structure and kind of, it, it gave what was essentially an aristocratic philosophy, right? The conservative movement, especially its more traditionalist and social conservative tendencies, it gave it this sort of uh, enlightenment and sort of, you know, um, uh, democratic kind of uh, veneer that it was able to use to justify the existing system of inequality that existed in the society you know, Hayek writes, uh, the constitution of Liberty. And in the 1960 appearance of the book, there's an afterward that where he writes, uh, it's a short essay that's called why I am not a conservative, you know, and hindsight's always 2020. And he seems to have sort of regrets about, um, you know, and again, it's hard to underestimate how influential he was as a person that, that was able to, Uh, bring different people together and and advance this sort of conservative coalition forward and influence people to get into politics and became part of this movement. Um, But he writes in that afterward that, you know, there are dangers now with with collaborating with conservatives in the traditional sense because of their authoritarian and paternalistic tendencies. And so I think even Hayek and others in hindsight, um, really, you know, Murray Rothbard also uh, author of The Enemy of the State and The Betrayal of the American Right and other books. Um, he was one of the founders of the Cato Institute, along with Charles Koch and others. Um, he sort of looked back as well and said, you know, the American conservative movement has become this theocratic crusade that just uses our ideas when it's convenient for them. And he really disassociated himself with conservatism uh, later on. But yeah, I think you're, that's an accurate assessment. Absolutely.
0: So, so now let's say we've got another kind of, of merging. Let's talk a little bit about the neoconservatives. How does, how does that wind up sort of bringing uh, this, this set of emerging ideas into putative Democrats?
1: You know, the neoconservatives are interesting because they start out... Um, D- Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and I put him into this category in the book, he sort of starts out on the, you know, the democratic sort of moderate left. And he's, he's an interesting figure because depending on the day and the issue and the article, uh, Daniel, and, and, even the, depending on the paragraph within the article, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan kind of says and advocates for different things at different times, but there are certain consistencies for him, but anyway, perhaps more on him later, The 1960s is a pivotal time, where the 50s was a pivotal time for the the New Right, the so-called New Right. Uh, The neoconservatives are also represent a kind of blending together of these ideals, but they have a different history and they have a bit of a different legacy, and it's different figures. There's even um, you know uh, some antagonism between the New Right and the neoconservatives. The new you know there's one article in National Review. That says to the the neoconservatives as they notice they're engaging in this critique of welfare and 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 starting to be much more skeptical about liberal policy uh, uh, you know initiatives etc. Where the, the title of the article is you know come on in the water's fine so they're kind of inviting them to join the conservative movement. Um, the neoconservatives do it differently. They're, you know they they their work kind of reads very differently than the new right. But they are blending together essentially those same ideas. So in the 1960s, it's a time when uh, typically we associate the period with um, the movements for justice and the new left and progressive reform. It's actually a very important time that kind of signals a, a shift to the right in the American political culture um, around uh, uh, different uh, you know issues, but especially welfare policy. And, uh, and this is for different reasons. Um, so the, the neoconservatives, they, their politics sort of start on the left. They're assorted um, Trotskyists and liberals and sort of mild radicals and conservatives, to use Nathan Glaser's term. Uh, this group, especially the group that looks at these issues related to welfare, include folks like Irving Kristol, who uh, Peter Steinfels, who wrote a great book in the 70s about the emerging neoconservatives. He calls Irving Kristol the sort of standard bearer of the group. Uh, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, who uh, recently passed away, Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And there's other figures, too, who sort of preceded them, but didn't sort of emphasize these policy issues so much. People like uh, Lionel Trilling and Sidney Hook and and a host of others. But at any rate, um, their work is interesting because they, you know, while the new right um, was attacking the welfare state relentlessly um, they didn't yet inject into their critique this sort of language yet that demonized poor black families that emphasized uh, sort of traditional social institutions uh, you know they weren't using a rhetoric that had yet kind of inflamed reactionary patriarchal attitudes you know framing uh, poor women's behavior in the context of things like, you know, uh, norms around work and motherhood and sexuality, et cetera, that actually happens with these liberals who, who migrate politically from the, you know, again, from the left to the right. Um, the Moynihan report comes out in 1965. Um, and he sort of signals this crisis that as we, um, are investing in the welfare state, you know, these programs are promoting all of these terrible behaviors, especially single motherhood. um, He's, uh, you know, he 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 kind of reinforces this idea that welfare programs are promoting, and this is his language: a tangle of cultural pathology, right? So he's sort of getting into looking at uh, urban working class and po- and poor black families, and he's the one that's sort of injecting this culture of poverty, version of the culture of poverty taken from Oscar Lewis, right, et cetera. Um, and sort of applying it to the American scene and using it to sort of demonize welfare recipients, in particular uh, African-American welfare recipients, especially single moms. Um, And, you know, they're, so they're the ones that sort of initiate this aspect to the critique. And it's this, along with the sort of, by the end of the 1960s, depending upon what data you look at, but especially going into the 1970s, where there's increasing economic and social instability, there is a sort of re- reactionary racist response to the migration of Black folks moving north into northeastern and midwestern cities, as well as uh, immigrants of color, especially Latinx immigrants coming into those same cities. Um, you have an increase in sort of print and broadcast media stories. Uh, Martin Gillens, the Yale Political Science, does a, a great study on that, and I sort of reference him in the book, uh, where he talks about how uh, during that period um, that you know, media accounts of welfare that were negative, that talked about things like welfare fraud and the culture of poverty and the underclass, those were much, much more likely, especially in articles about the underclass where it was 100%, uh, they were much more likely to feature images of Black welfare recipients. But when they were talking about uh, programs that had much more public sympathy, things like disability insurance and social security, they almost always portrayed sort of images of white folks. Um, so you had these largely negative, but increase in media accounts of welfare and welfare recipients that were reproducing these stereotypes and these ideas. Um, and, you know, it, it created this sort of confluence of, of conditions and forces, right, and processes that enabled this kind of ideology that was tapping into this, this uh, nation, and not so nation, you know, white fear and the movements for justice, the black freedom and civil rights struggles, the, you know, and this applies today, I think, with the sort of return to authoritarianism under the current uh, president, the sort of sense of, Tony Morrison wrote about this after the election in, in, uh, uh, in the nation, uh, where she talked about sort of, you know, support for uh, quasi-racial sort of fascist uh, ideology in many ways is, is spurned by senses of powerlessness and is, is sparked by, not spurned, sparked and sparked by the sense that people have, at least they perceive that the privilege that they've enjoyed through their lives is sort of in decline by virtue of the discourses around justice, et cetera, that are happening. So Nixon is tapping into this as well. And, you know, Trump, uh, during the campaign uh, run up to the 2016 election, he kind of filched from Nixon a whole bunch of these little sound bites, like law and order. He referred to the silent majority. So in the 1960s, there are these loudmouth activists and civil rights people out on the streets making all this noise. But when he talked about the silent majority back then, and when Trump talks about it now, he's... He's speaking to white America, right? And he's sort of stoking this resentment around these changes that are taking place. And another important condition, sort of democratic. It's it's hard it, it's hard to sort of mention all of these things with the detail that's necessary in this in this short period of time. But also the changing American family structure at that time. You know, single motherhood wasn't just a urban black phenomenon. You know the the divorce rates and, and women who are having children who were never married, you know, those rates were increasing for all groups, but they were politicized in particular uh, with a single mother, uh, with, uh, you know, mothers of color, poor, poor women of color. But uh, so, and, you know, in some ways what you show by, by bringing all of those
0: strains together is that those ideas resonate, resonated and arguably continue to resonate precisely because they are racist and misogynist.
1: Exactly. I mean, we have to understand these things in terms of systems that reproduce privilege and disadvantage too. So the if, if I feel, if in fact I am disempowered as, let's say, a white working class or middle class person, uh, but at the same time, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as the white racial wage, if I feel like the premium that's placed on my whiteness, that value is in decline because of what's happening in the society. It's not just my racism, like that's a big part of it. But it's also that racism in connection to the sense that the premium that's been placed on my whiteness is the value is decreasing. It creates this almost reactive... Um, um, knee jerk kind of authoritarian racism that, that is, it's psychosocial. You know, it's, it's very difficult to sort of, once that's sort of out of the box, it's hard to put it back in. And that's, that's deep, sadly, that's deeply troubling.
0: This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to us speak with Darren Baraney, who is the author of, author of a terrific new book called The New Welfare Consensus, Ideological, Political, and Social Origins from SUNY Press. Darren, in our last couple of minutes, tell us what you're working on at the moment.
1: Um, so the the last article I wrote and was published in Logos uh, was an article that sort of looked at the World War II era research on authoritarianism and used that as a way to sort of make sense of the political rise of Trump and Trumpism. I encourage all the listeners to shamelessly plug my work, of course, to check that out. Uh, but that's um but one one thing I've been thinking about sort of exploring further is and it, it sort of touches on the, the discussion the end of our discussion is sort of how this authoritarian dimension as it cuts across these uh, uh, you know, these these uh, racist and misogynistic ways of thinking, the way they relate to power dynamics and people's perceptions of a loss of power. I've been thinking about exploring that in a much more sort of uh, elaborating that further in a much more comprehensive project, perhaps. Um, also, at uh, uh, by the way, I'm an associate professor at LaGuardia Community College at the City University of New York. Um, and at LaGuardia, I'm one of the co-organizers of our campus's uh, uh, Surge chapter, showing up for racial justice. Um, I am—I'm in the early stages of working on a reflection piece um, about the the work that we've been doing at uh, on the LaGuardia campus as a Surge chapter at an incredibly diverse place, but how the work that we do. Um, as a, a white affinity group, right, as allies to our colleagues and, and students and fellow faculty of color, um, you know, how the work that we do is important in a, in, a, in a diverse urban setting as much as it is in some other other type of setting.
0: Darren Berini, author of The New Welfare Consensus. Darren, thank you very much for joining
1: us today. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for having me.